1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If this were real talk radio, I would disagree each week in violent language with anyone who dared to disagree with my interpretation of Civil War era history. Because, of course, anyone who did so would clearly be a freedom-hating, anti-American, socialistic, hippie, communist, pervert, atheist. And you, my loyal listeners, would agree with everything I said. But fortunately, this is Civil War Talk Radio, and our subject today is a fascinating new book that explores the escalation of political rhetoric before the Civil War, and uncovers the role that language played in bringing about that cataclysm. The book is titled Disunion. The author and our guest today is Professor Elizabeth R. Varon, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk.
1: Answer
0: the President's call to service.
3: As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion.
0: As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio, this is Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a cloudy Friday afternoon in October 2009. We are uh, well now into the uh, football season, uh, both uh, world football and American football, but ECU Pirates are doing all right, but sad to say, and I know listeners have been on on tenderhooks all week waiting to know this. The Greenville Stars uh, girls U fourteen travel soccer team lost last week, uh, hi Jerry, two and one. Oh, hi, be with you in a second. Um, falling uh, uh, two to one to a uh, uh, the U thirteen team from Rocky Mountain. We look forward to playing them again later in the season, perhaps recouping that. Um, before going any further, a reminder that of course the show comes to you from East Carolina University. It's not brought to you by them and we're not, uh, I'm not speaking on their behalf. My guest won't speak for her institution, I'm sure, and we'll all be uh, doing our own thing as ever. And in further housekeeping, thanks once again to everyone who's uh, sent suggestions during the, uh, the past month, uh, or past week actually, uh, for new guests on the show and also donations to the Book fund for civil war talk radio you can send those to civil war t r at a o l dot com and uh, be happy to send you uh, one of my books in return just tell me what you'd like well this week uh we well every week on this show there's there's another book to be discussed and uh week after week i read books uh read books about the civil war as 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 most of you listeners do there's no reason for me ever to complain about this. Uh, uh, I I know from my brief period of working in the real world that uh, listening to academics complain about having to do what people love to do uh, is is not pleasant for anyone. They don't want to hear it. So I'm not going to complain about reading a new uh, book every week. I'd probably do it anyway. But some weeks it's different from others. Some weeks uh, sometimes the minutiae gets a bit much. Sometimes the author is... uh, an enthusiastic uh, uh, a well meaning amateur whose facility with words is not maybe not of the best, but every once in a while uh, and this is one of those weeks you get a book that is just uh, just fascinating that just uh, brings something new to the table uh, that, that breaks uh, some some new ground and uh, makes the whole project worthwhile so i 'm happy to say we 've uh, got one of those uh, to talk about this week. Uh, the author is uh, Professor Elizabeth R. Varon, uh, who I hope is on the line. Uh, uh, Professor Varon, are you there?
3: Are you? Great to great to make your acquaintance. Yeah,
1: you too. Um, please call me Jerry to save time. Uh, may okay. I uh, use the first name with you?
3: Uh, under, you may call me Liz.
1: Thank you, uh, Liz. Uh, that will that'll keep us both going more quickly along
3: here. I think so. Um,
1: well, see, uh, Liz, you are. Um, quickly opening the back of the book to remind myself you're at temple university
3: that's right so um, i'm talking to you from uh, lovely suburban philadelphia also gray and cloudy here uh, i must say but uh, yes I'm, I'm at the temple a, a wonderful uh, university been here for five years and uh, philadelphia though many people don't realize it is a great civil war city in it's in its own right it was a a central and arguably the central northern home front as a uh, place that uh, teamed with factories and soldiers being recruited and trained in hospitals and all, and all the rest. It was also a deeply divided city, and my, my book uh, gets at some of the antebellum roots of those divisions, but it's, uh, it's a great place to be a historian, needless to say. Everyone knows about Independence Hall and, and the Constitution Center and all the rest, but it's also a great, a great town for antebellum and Civil War history.
1: It, it, it is that, certainly. The... Uh... I uh, I've spoken the show uh, a year or two ago to the director of the, the Civil War Museum there. Right. Uh, you have uh, I think General Meade's horse among other things.
3: That's so, right, right, a great collection of of items.
1: And uh I had the uh pleasure of uh, speaking uh, uh in Bucks County not not too long ago to the Civil War Roundtable there, one of the few Civil War roundtables to have its own uh uh, its own building. Uh, it's a and, very
3: active area, and of course we also have the Union League in Philadelphia, the, the mm-hmm. first Union League uh, on which so many others were based, which has its own uh, excellent collection. So it really is uh, really is a, uh, well, worth making a stop here to, to, to partake of all of the, the great history the city has to offer.
1: Absolutely, and listeners will, will definitely want to do that. Uh, there, there, there's a lot there. Yeah. The uh, now, one of my colleagues here at East Carolina actually commutes from Philadelphia, which is wow
3: that's a that's uh, a commute It's wow. a
1: stretch uh, she, yeah. she comes in for the teaching week uh, but her uh, husband and children are still in uh, the, the Philadelphia area and uh, uh, so she she comes in and and uh, does things with us here and yeah and a
3: lot a lot of commuting in our line of work you know as as you were saying it's it's these uh they're good jobs to have in academia uh, and and people will oftentimes make make big sacrifices to hold them down you know
1: and they do you see a lot of the, the separated families, two couple mm-hmm. two career families doing that that it 's uh, not something I can imagine doing, but uh, you know never say never uh, yeah
3: these, these yeah, things yeah
1: happen well, uh, often on the show, uh, I get distracted and, and uh, start talking about how travel funds are being cut and how mm-hmm. things are going with the budget i'm sure things are that way in your department as well, but l- let's let's skip that and get to the book because yeah. i really did enjoy that uh... That was
3: very a very um, kind introduction that you made I, I really appreciate your your uh... your your close reading of it and and uh... you know it's always gratifying for an author to uh... feel like you're you're reaching people and it was certainly fun and fascinating to write no question about it very challenging uh... as well
1: well it, it, it to, to me what this seems to do i mean the title of the book Disunion, with an exclamation point, so mm-hmm. I'll shout it, Disunion, the uh, yeah. coming of the American Civil War, and then the dates: 1789-1859. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you begin your story with the, the constitutional era. Uh, let me just lay out for the, for the readers, or the listeners, who who will become readers after the show when they go out and get a copy of this. The, uh, uh, the listeners, you, in a nutshell, it seems to me, you, you take the word disunion and, and, and show how this, one particular piece of political rhetoric takes on a life of its own and, and becomes part of the cause of disunion.
3: That's, uh, that's right. Uh, it, it's, of course, it's a strange-sounding word to modern ears. We literally don't use the word anymore. Even the word union sounds somewhat archaic, but I do argue that it's a word that had this enormous emotional resonance for uh, people in early America and the antebellum uh, era, because it conjured for them all of their fears, and they had many different kinds of fears about the Republic's fragility. It's, it's of course easy for us to forget, especially for our students to forget that, that, uh, in this first 75 years between the, the Constitution and the Civil War, the Republic was in the eyes of many people a kind of ongoing experiment, and they weren't entirely certain that the experiment was gonna uh, succeed, and they felt that they were under threat from all kinds of external threats, rival powers and whatnot, but also internal threats. There were fears of, that excessive factionalism, which George Washington and others had warned about, would, would kind of tear at the vitals of the nation. There were fears of class conflict and regionalism and anarchy and economic decline and moral decline. And this word disunion became the kind of catch-all phrase to, to sum up all of those fears. Uh, and uh, uh, and 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 it became a a keyword word, as I put it, in the political debates of the era we we one one of the the things the book tries to do is to suggest that while it's commonplace in most historical scholarship on the Civil War to use disunion and secession, a word we all know well in our field, as synonyms. In fact, disunion was a much bigger word, a more prevalent word than secession. Secession refers, as we all know, uh, narrowly to the sort of mechanism by which the South left the Union. Uh, Disunion was a word that um, uh, uh, meant more than secession. Again, it was it was a sort of uh, meant to conjure an image of national ruin, uh, and and of a national ruin that might sort of even transcend politics, God's punishment for American sins, uh, and so on, or or, or, or sort of prophecies of, of national decline, and and it became politically useful. It was it was everywhere in antebellum rhetoric, in part because it. It touched deep fears people had about whether the republic would survive, but also because politicians, who weren't so different back then as they are now, couldn't resist the temptation to capitalize on those fears by using this word. And they used it not only as a threat, and that's sort of a dynamic we're familiar with from other books on Civil War causality, Southerners threatened Disunion to Protect Slavery. They also used it, as I've just suggested, as a prophecy and as an accusation to accuse your opponent of wanting disunion, of wanting national ruin, was to accuse him or her of treason, and accusations of treason were very common in this era in American history. Uh, they, they weren't shy at all. Northerners or, or Southerners about accusing their political opponents of treason. To say you're a disunionist was to say um, that you had your political agenda was treasonous, and this was a charge that that. Um, uh, they leveled at each other back and forth uh, again and again. And uh, you had noted that I begin in 1789. And let me just say a word, if I can, about that choice, because it is an unconventional choice in a book of this kind. I had planned when I took on this assignment, this is part of a new uh, series called The Littlefield. Uh, the History of the Civil War era that University of North Carolina press is bringing out, and the series editors are two very renowned civil War historians Gall- Gary Gallagher and T Michael Parrish and We have wonderful volumes on every aspect of the war. My volume naturally is the first one chronologically, and it was the first out of the gate in the series and When I got this assignment some years ago, I thought well you know, I'll start in 1848, like David Potter and many other historians of Civil War causality have done. End of the Mexican War, the sort of point at which the territorial conflict over slavery, will slavery expand into the, the West the Mexican session, really becomes central to American politics. And, and from that point on, one can agree that slavery is the overriding issue in partisan politics. Well, I found all kinds of evidence of this disunion rhetoric as I looked at the late 1840s and 1850s, and I asked myself, as historians do, well, you know, where did it come from? So I started going back into the 1830s, and and then I started going back into the 1820s, and as I was looking for the roots of these fears and, and of the usage of this word, it took me all the way back to the very beginning where I found... Um, not so much threats, but prophecies of disunion, very, very common, even at the time of the Constitutional Convention, uh, worries that the Republic just wouldn't survive.
1: Now, one of the things about this book, by by focusing on this rhetoric, especially the word disunion, um, and some listeners might be wondering this, uh, is this a way of saying, well, somehow you're deflecting attention from the issue of slavery itself, not at all. Uh, and and uh, well, you, you, you lay out the, the historiography, the, the, uh, the fundamentalists and the new revisionists. Right. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, sure, absolutely. There, there's, a, there's a strong consensus among modern scholars that slavery was the root cause, the fundamental cause of the Civil War. And, and uh, there is a sort of second school, which we might call modern revisionists, that argues that slavery was uh, one of many political issues, not always the principal one uh, in antebellum politics, and that people's political allegiances to Whigs and Democrats, for example, uh, and their political concerns and priorities weren't always driven by the slavery issue, that there were other uh, other uh, uh, sources of political identity, ethnocultural identifications, economic concerns, and so on. Um, I uh, uh, am not fundamentally trying to uh, revise the fundamentalist interpretation. I do believe that slavery was the root cause of the war, but to address a kind of, uh, in some sense, weakness or set of questions that it raises... If we say slavery was the root cause of the war and slavery was present from the very beginning, indeed, you know, long before the republic was founded, then you have to ask yourself, well, why did it take the war so long to come? So the question of timing is one that's problematic for the fundamentalist. Slavery present from the start, yet we don't have a war until 1861. So part of the reason why we have wave after wave of revisionism is people trying to grapple with that That. That question: How do you how do you explain the timing? Um, there's also another uh, sort of uh, corollary question. Most white Southerners, as we know, didn't own slaves. So what was their stake in a war uh, for slavery? If uh, slavery was the root cause, and again, in an effort to answer that question, uh, people keep digging deeper and deeper. My argument about disunion is that it was a word that conjured up all these fears about the republic's survival, but that the deepest fear was the fear that the slave issue, issue of slavery would divide the republic. And in fact, um, uh, disunion uh, came to be associated with the slavery debate. Part, one of my animating questions as I started this was to sort of ask, Whenever, uh, why couldn't Americans debate slavery without raising the issue of disunion? Whenever there were slavery debates on the national scene, but also sometimes at the state level, disunion charges... And countercharges inevitably came to the fore, so why couldn 't we talk about slavery without talking about uh, about disunion and The reason is that again, that there was this sense that the republic was fragile, and that, that the fundamental divide in the republic, the most dangerous of the many possible rifts that might uh, produce disunion, was the rift over slavery. so I believe slavery was the the uh, you know indeed the most fundamental not the only one but the most fundamental of these divides and the only one ultimately that could have produced uh... disunion um... but but fears of disunion touched on uh... again like i said class fears of class conflict of 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 excessive partisanship of moral decline of economic decline and all of those anxieties came to focus on the issue of slavery over the course of the antebellum period so so in some sense as i put it in the book I'm not disagreeing that slavery was the root cause of the war, but I'm trying to elucidate the the terms of debate over slavery and to explain why uh, Americans couldn't talk about slavery without raising the prospect of disunion.
1: And, and that's uh, uh, it gets over a hurdle because it is uh, difficult sometimes to to challenge the uh, uh, the slavery consensus without. Uh, well, well, I guess there are people who do challenge the slavery consensus, mm-hmm. but they they are coming from far out in. Uh, not not only a far out in right field, uh, but outside the stadium. Uh, I think of to yeah, right, Lorenzo, right, and people right. like that. Um, so uh, one doesn't want to take a, even the chance of being being looked at in that light. Uh, but but what you're doing is. is Challenging the, the uh, slavery consensus, not its fundamental uh, importance to the war, but
3: but there's much uh, more to uh, the said. instrumentality, yeah. how it yeah. comes yeah, about. the instrumentality. Actually. That's a really good way of putting it. I mean, another way of, of putting it is to just say that uh, uh, everyone knows that slavery was divisive and the most divisive issue. But but how and why did it prove so divisive? And and that's that's uh, something that this focus on disunion helps to helps to explain. I think.
1: Well, let's look at some examples. Um, the, uh, uh, you, you look at the, the way Northerners, for example, opposed uh, slavery in the 1830s uh, in, in two very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a multiplicity of different ways. So many different ways, in fact. What we'll do is take a short break now. We'll come back okay. in just a minute uh, okay. after a few messages. Uh, we're talking today with Elizabeth Varon, author of Disunion. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Is there anything for contemporary politicians to learn from the consequences of pre-Civil War rhetoric? We'll ask our guest, Elizabeth Barron, that question when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real.
0: This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious.
2: It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, It's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may
0: happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure. 1-800-BE READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council.
2: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Elizabeth Barron, author of Disunion The Coming of the Civil War, 1789 1859. A fascinating new book that looks at the political rhetoric of the slavery controversy in the decades leading up to the war and traces how the, uh, in particular, the single word disunion took on many <laughs> significant meanings and indeed uh, influenced uh, uh, events uh, that eventually led to the war itself. Uh, Liz, in our first segment, uh, we ended uh, with my. Wanting to ask you a question about specifically how how this worked in some cases.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, let,
1: let's look at the, the the anti-slavery and abolition movements of the 1830s. Yeah, uh, contrasting the Garrisonian uh, uh, extreme on the one hand with the uh, well, well, with a range of other uh, uh, opposition to slavery uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, actions. So can you talk about that?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean. The Garrisonians come along in the 18, early 1830s. They uh, were called immediatists at the time because they were asking for an immediate abolition of slavery, not for kind of gradual formulas where slavery is is dismantled slowly. And they arrived on the scene knowing that in the previous decades, uh, those who defended slavery, southern slaveholders, had cast the sort of protective spell over the institution, and they'd cast that spell with prophecies of disunion. They had said to their opponents, if you oppose the extension of slavery, for example, in the Missouri Compromise debates, or if you raise the specter of abolition, you will destroy the country. You will embolden the slaves to revolt. You will alienate the South from the North and break the sort of federal compact, and you will invalidate the compromises that were made at the time of the founding. And this, these kind of prophecies, so in other words, uh, early on, uh, Southerners uh, who wanted to defend slavery did so not by threatening to secede, but by, but by prophesizing that disunion was a, the, the worst possible thing that could happen, a terrible cataclysm, and that any sort of agitation, as they put it, of the slavery issue might bring disunion. So the Garrisonians come along realizing that they have to somehow break this spell. And they try to break the spell by making a case that slavery is a moral evil that slavery and not agitation of the issue is the real source of danger to the republic that it's a kind of cancer uh, eating at the vitals of the republic and that uh, uh and that there will, will be divine retribution if the nation uh, can't repent um of this of this sin they also try to counter the kind of rhetoric that slavery's defenders had used a rhetoric that imagined that that abolition would lead to a kind of race war by saying Far from it. No, blacks and whites can live in harmony uh, if, uh, if given half a chance and free, the free black communities in places like Philadelphia especially tried to um, associate a- abolition with images of racial harmony and of racial equality. Now, unfortunately, as, as my book explains, there was deep and profound racism in the North, and this specter of social equality between the races and racial harmony was as threatening to some racist white northerners as... Uh, the specter of slave rebellion was in the South. They just didn't, uh, uh, couldn't imagine this kind of equality. So uh, Garrisonians, and this is something people don't often appreciate enough, when these Garrisonian ca- immediatists came on the scene in the early 1830s, and this, I should note, was an interracial coalition of free blacks and of whites, uh, many of them uh, uh, motivated by uh, sort of religious principles who, who came together, when they came on the scene, they encountered stiff and fierce and at times murderous resistance in the North. They were mobbed, they were decried, uh, uh, they were at times, uh, you know, uh, uh, harmed uh, uh, and injured and threatened. Uh, and the, 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 interestingly, the main charge that the anti-abolitionists of the North leveled at these garrisonians was the accusation that they, the abolitionists, were disunionists, that the abolitionists, uh, again, their sort of aim was to drive a wedge between the North and the South and to bring on a war. It was, uh, it was uh, again, a kind of charge of treasonous intent, uh, an accusation that abolitionists uh, wa- you know, wanted national ruin and, and were determined at any cost to, 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 to bring it on. So this was a dilemma for uh, 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 people like Garrison, and the abolitionist movement uh, sort of struggles with how to answer these charges. One answer is the sort of common-sense answer I alluded to before. The root problem, the danger to the nation is the institution of slavery itself because it's immoral and a contradiction of the nation's founding principles. All men are created equal uh, and and republicanism itself. But... um, Uh, 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 Another answer was uh, uh, one that Garrison eventually gravitated towards. He's really radicalized by the stiff resistance he encounters in uh, in the North, Uh, and there are a few famous incidents of of violence perpetrated by uh, anti-abolition mobs on, uh, on northern abolitionists. By the early 1840s, Garrison has adopted this really quite, um, provocative stance. He now says, "You know what? I am a disunionist in the sense that the the existing union is a kind of mockery. There, you can't have a real union of freedom and slavery. So we, uh, uh, who, those of us in the North who believe in a free society, have to say no union with slaveholders and have to just." Uh, uh, sort of cut off all contact with them. So Garrison's mantra in the 1840s becomes no union with slaveholders. And he says, I'm a disunionist in the sense that this sham union has to fall and crumble before we can build a truly moral uh, union. Um, This is much too radical for most Northerners, and even for most Northerners who don't like slavery. So we have the emergence in the late 1830s and early 1840s of a kind of more moderate wing of the anti-slavery movement that is very eager to distance itself from Garrisonian abolitionism. And these more moderate anti-slavery types want to neutralize the charge that they're disunionists. They want to spread the message that uh, anti-slavery is the only way to save the nation and redeem it. And, and as we all know, that, that that message, the vehicles for that message are, for, are a series of political parties that come along and then disappear, first the Liberty Party and then the Free Soil Party. But eventually that message catches on when the Republican Party comes on the scene in the 1850s. The Republicans are very, very anxious to distance themselves from Garrisonian extremism and to say, we, the Republican Party, stand for the union. We, we, the only disunionists here are Southern... Uh... The nationalist Southern secessionists, uh... Republicans stand for the Union, but but it's it's an uphill battle. Uh... 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 Deep into the 1850s, um, the Republican Party is still being accused by its opponents of sort of wanting disunion, of wanting to alienate the South, wanting to speak to start a war, and then using that war as the pretext to impose its own political agenda on the country.
1: Let me ask you a question that ties in with something I uh, said in the introduction to this segment. Um, As I was reading his book, uh, one, it it seemed to, a book that came to mind frequently uh, was uh, Bernard Balin's classic on the ideology of the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. which in the 1960s uh, uh, broke new ground by by getting readers to take seriously the rhetoric of the revolutionary generation. When they Mm -hmm. said they didn't want to be slaves to Britain, they they really Mm -hmm. meant it for generations. Generations historians had, had disregarded that and thought it was really economic and, and political, and it right. couldn't seriously mean they were slaves. You know, John Hancock's nobody's slave. Right. Uh, and, and Balin got people to review that literature and see that they did mean their, they did take their their language seriously. They did mean mm-hmm. what they said. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was in a generation when uh, uh, on American campuses people were taking ideology. Much more seriously than they had, or in a different way uh, than they had, uh, and, and, and challenging governments in a way that they hadn't done for many decades. Now, your book comes along in a time when we have very heated political rhetoric on, on places like talk radio, uh, which this the show is not an example of, it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, very uh, very
3: nice civil tone here, and it, and it's important because it, it, it's. Uh, you know uh, uh we, there, there's so much good work and assimilating it is difficult but people have to have open minds in order to uh you know to assimilate it
1: well the, do you do you see that, that this i mean i wonder if this book will will find an audience i hope it does as Balins did in its time uh because you know, he he took a, a subject 200 years old and made it relevant to his generation uh, not by by conscious links in in the work, uh, and yours does not consciously say anything mm-hmm. about this, the, the time we live in, but as I read it, I could not you know avoid thinking continuously here's a story of how people took uh, words, and as you said uh, a few minutes ago, uh, politicians could not resist the yeah. use of the word disunion for its shock value and its its use as a threat as a accusation, as a prophecy yeah uh, is well yeah uh, i mean you're you're right what what did you feel any echoes of of today's political rhetoric as you were writing this
3: well uh, it's an interesting question people often ask about American political culture and whether it's changed over time. We have a tendency to say, for example, that things are so much nastier now than they were in the, in the, in the public discourse, uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Jacksonian era politics, for example, there is a just, you know, gloves off, uh, a no holds barred, um, uh, uh, you know unrestrained attacks on one 's opponents are just are just the the, the, the you know the, the, the standard practice uh, back then personal attacks as i said much more so than uh, much more openly and overtly than today attacks on people 's patriotism uh, aspersions of treason, and so on you know this was the stock and trade of of, of politicians back then now it doesn 't mean that there wasn 't also high flown and idealistic rhetoric, but there was a lot of fear mongering and i i As I as I wrote the book, I didn't think only about today, but about the 20th century. And I mean, you know, one can argue that there's been fear mongering in every era of American history. But there's but this use of disunion was not always. Some some people invoked it quite idealistically or for idealistic aims. But there were plenty of times in which it was invoked in a way that was manipulative, and that was fear-mongering. And when you fear-monger, you reap what you sow. You know what I mean? That That's one sort of moral of the story. Um, but, but I also feel that I, I, uh, I, I, I thought a lot about the fact, as I wrote this book, about free speech itself, and, and as dangerous as this word was, or volatile, as dangerous as it proved and as volatile as it was, uh, free speech is, you know, the cornerstone of American democracy, and one of the the the, the, the great uh, divides, great problems uh, uh, that uh, that uh, pitted North against South in this era was that uh, southern slaveholders, uh, the powers that be uh, in the South, were suppressing free speech and and uh, trying to suppress the anti-slavery debate uh, out of all sorts of fears that. That, uh, anti slavery reviews might catch on, particularly among non-slave holding whites. And, uh, uh, you know, one reaps what one sows for that too. It's, it's, uh, susp- suppressing free speech is a, is, is a, is a dangerous, uh, uh, thing to do. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I, I can't say that I, I made a lot of explicit connections in my mind to contemporary politics. I feel like, uh, uh, there has been, one could argue that things are a little overheated these days, but, um, but you know, compared to what I was reading, sometimes modern politics seems a little tame. Maybe, maybe that's the best way to put it. There's also something about antebellum rhetoric. Our, uh, well, my, there's a, Maybe the best way to put it is, is to say the following. We, a number of people have observed now in our world of uh, the Internet and all the rest, our attention spans have gotten shorter. In the period I'm looking at here, politics was mass entertainment. There were was no uh, there were no alter, not many alternatives. People showed up to hear speeches by Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and John C Calhoun and all the rest on things like the tariff. You know, speeches that went on for 4 hours uh, at a time. Uh, uh speeches that were unbelievably detailed, oftentimes given without notes. The great orators of the day uh uh just had a sort of dazzling ability for extemporaneous uh, talk that uh, one doesn't see so much anymore, and people seem to have enormous patience for listening to political debate uh, that that, uh, that we don't seem to have anymore. So I, I, it was not a soundbite sort of world, and, and though all newspapers at the time were partisan, and this is, again, something people forget, uh, all antebellum papers, it said on the masthead pretty much which party they were for. There was no newspaper or media outlet that... Claimed to be objective, or that even strived for objectivity, it wasn't a goal. They were openly partisan. So, in some sense, it was hard if you were uh, just a uh, common man or woman living in the North and the South, and you wanted to get some kind of straight down the middle, uh, uh, but, you know, account of things that that, that aimed for objectivity. You weren't you weren't going to find it, and that that also kind of raised the temperature uh, of of, uh, of political um, uh, of political debate. But newspapers did. Cover congressional speeches, for example, or cover the editorializing of their uh, of the opposition paper at some great uh, de- uh, length and, and in some detail so, so in some sense, it was a political culture that had fewer and poorer sources of information than ours did, but in another way. Um, uh, because people really read newspapers, and because the newspapers were so assiduous and sort of copying from each other and reprinting really long speeches—again, not sound bites, but you know, speeches that went on for pages and pages—they, in a way, had had a sort of good access to information. The last thing I'll say is that antebellum political rhetoric was was very colorful—a sort of endless range of of metaphors and put downs and and uh, and and uh, you know images—and I found this. In looking at disunion. In order to kind of get people to to, to conjure disunion it was it was likened to any number of things. The, the, the most common metaphor, and we see this even today in books on the Civil War, was the idea that it, there was a coming storm, the approaching storm. But it was also uh, likened to a fire and a spell and and uh, uh, an omen and and uh, you know sometimes uh, uh, an animal, a you know kind of snake in the grass. You name it. People reached for metaphors to try to bring these ideas to life. And so um, you know, reading newspapers from the day is is uh, uh, is, is fascinating, almost distractingly so, because the language was so colorful.
1: Well, the, the metaphor I like, the one I, I, I plan to use in in the upcoming uh, election for department chair is that uh, uh, when I took office as acting chair, we stood on the edge of a Deep chasm, but under my leadership, we have taken a great leap forward. <laughs>
3: yeah, uh, it's an argument. Yeah, I but, but the chasm was you. used frequently. Good the, luck, the good luck with that. I mean, yes, the metaphor, and I almost called this book on on the precipice. It was a little bit of a mouthful, so we chose not to. But but the 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 meta- metaphor of an abyss, uh, you know, with America on the brink, you know, of this abyss on the edge of it, peering down into the unfathomable depths. This was a very very common metaphor, and and I should say that that these images of disunion, particularly as a prophecy, were were really popular among those people who considered themselves the moderates in, in the middle of the road. If they, if they felt that the you know states' rights, pro-slavery folks were too extreme and the abolitionists were too extreme and, 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 and you wanted to, to kind of cling to the hope of compromise at all costs, one way to do so was to accuse... The, the people on the extreme ends of the political spectrum of sort of bringing america to the brink of this precipice and and famous compromisers like henry clay and daniel webster again and again use this this uh this language uh sort of you know uh, woe to the to to us if we if we uh if we slip off the edge
1: the uh, uh th- there are, are... There's So many things I want to ask. I'm, I'm stumbling over my words here. Um, one of them, one of the things I liked about this, uh, particularly, is, is that, that the writing is, is largely free of jargon, mm-hmm. and that. Um, what I'll, I'll ask you about that uh, when we return in just a moment. Sure. Uh, we are talking today with Elizabeth Barron, author of Disunion. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be right back.
2: World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk.
1: Were abolitionists more effeminate than slaveholders? We'll find out how gender affected the slavery debate when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk.
3: My husband and I, we met at a
2: strip mall
3: dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful
2: strip mall
3: built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the
1: Highway on Ramp.
3: For all the men who'd enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the
2: car dealership.
3: But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the...
1: High rise.
3: Each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me,
0: and we married at the little...
2: Convenience store.
0: Downtown.
2: When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit NationalTrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Elizabeth Varon, author of *Disunion: The Coming of the American Civil War, 1789 to 1859*. Uh, we've been talking about how this single word "disunion" carried so much more ideological and emotional freight than it does today, uh, and how it was used as a weapon, uh, a rhetorical weapon, by, by people on both sides in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Um, Liz, one thing I particularly uh, found interesting about this book as I started to say is, is that it 's uh, written pretty much free of historical jargon, which is a, a huge obstacle in getting the public to read our books when, when, when people succumb to that, and it also uh, addresses some topics or takes some approaches that are uh, traditionally fas- that have been fashionable for some time within the historical world a, the professional history world but don't always resonate particularly well with readers Um, uh... this is something that we see particularly in the, the civil war era where there's there are plenty of readers but many of them are interested more in in stories of battles and campaigns than how race class or gender affected uh... historical events uh... whereas the academy uh... tends to favor the latter or has for some time now here you, uh, mentioned, uh, you talk about the agency of, of women, of uh, free blacks in the North, uh, of slaves themselves, uh, uh, you do not limit the story to the traditional white male, uh, activity in the abolition movement or the, the slave movement, slaveholders movement for that matter. But it, it, it seems to me you, you do it with, with, uh, uh, in a way that I found, uh, very intuitive and and, uh, compelling. Uh, The example that sticks my mind is that of the Wilmot Proviso, uh, which uh, our listeners are are quickly racking their brains to remember the details of the the, uh, proposed law that would have prohibited slavery in any territory the United States obtained from Mexico in in its war with that country. Uh, You argue that both sides characterize the other in, in highly gendered language when they argued about the Wilmot not provide so, that the other side was being uh, effeminate and that they were being manly. Can you talk about that? Hmm. Have we lost our connection? Holy cow. Well, we may have lost our guest. I'm right here. No, nope, you're still there. Oh, um, did, you, yeah. did you hear the question?
3: I did. I heard the question. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Please yeah, go ahead. was a uh, little small technical difficulty, but we're back on track.
0: Wonderful.
3: Um, people not only questioned each other's patriotism at the drop of a hat during this era, they also uh, questioned each other's manhood. And it was a typical uh, a set of accusations that flew back and forth between anti-abolitionists and abolitionists. Uh, sort of gender aspersions casting doubt on whether the other, uh, side was as manly as your side was, was, was common. So a typical way this might go is, is, uh, abolitionists in their movement not only welcomed women as recruits as foot soldiers but also gave women leadership positions in the movement as as uh... even up there on the podium not just writing anti-slavery tracts, but getting out and speaking in front of audiences which was something that was considered quite radical at the time so anti abolitionists said ah well you know abolitionists like garrison are just hiding behind the petticoats of women they're they're not manly they're being led around the nose by female abolitionists uh, which, example of a charge running in the other direction, abolitionists often, and northern uh, northerners more generally, sort of question the manhood of slavery's defenders by saying that these slave owners are these this kind of rich, arist- aristocratic, um, of, you know, oligarchs in the old style who have never done an honest day's work in their life, and, are, and in that sense are not manly. Now, um, you know, to recognize this is to recognize something important about the political rhetoric of the time, but I also focused on gender because, again, part of what I'm trying to get at in this book is that abolitionism was perceived as profoundly threatening by. Southern slaveholders who wanted to defend the institution, but also by Northerners who didn't want to see the racial status quo change, the caste system in the North change. Why was it perceived as so threatening? Well, you can't answer that question if you don't confront the fact that abolitionists were proposing a kind of universal brotherhood and sisterhood that crossed lines of gender and race. Um, and region too abolitionists initially really did want to reach out to the South, although that became uh, impossible because of gag rules and and all sorts of other obstacles. But they were proposing a kind of uh, social equality between uh, 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 blacks and whites and and women and men that was just considered radical by by the mainstream at the time and if you don 't understand uh, that that uh, Sort of ethos of the abolitionists uh, and 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 the ways in which they, uh, uh, women and and f- uh, free blacks, uh, were important spokespeople for this movement. Then you can understand uh, all of the kind of train of events that a- anti-abolitionism sets uh, sets in motion. So so it's it's a it's a it's a central it's a central part of the story. And and uh, I'm one of a number of scholars recently who've argued that you know by the end by the eighteen fifties uh... the sort of republicans and southern nationalists are, are arguing that their two societies are incompatible in many ways, but one of the ways is is that they have different gender systems. The south defends it 's a sort of more patriarchal male dominated system. the north defends a somewhat more uh, not 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 feminist by modern standards but a somewhat more egalitarian uh, system and uh, and each side casts aspersions on <laughs> the system of the other side so so uh, gendered rhetoric gendered accusations are absolutely central to the politics of the time, and really jump off the page this wasn 't uh, you know, this isn't this isn't an add-on. You know, if you if you read this rhetoric, like the Wilmot Proviso rhetoric, it really jumps off the page that uh, that each side accuses the other of uh, of not being uh, manly enough. Um, so, so I saw it everywhere.
1: Well, the, the, the caning of Charles Sumner is another incident. Uh, the use of violence uh, is seen as central to Southern manhood, mm-hmm, uh, the protection mm-hmm. of honor through dueling, through fighting. Exactly. Uh, That's right,
3: and 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 in the eyes of of, of northern critics of that that uh, of that act and of that that uh, mindset, this is that is a kind of barbaric and uncivilized uh, behavior, and uh, uh, and 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 a sign of the inferiority of the southern social system.
1: The the northerners set up reason against passion, which Mm -hmm. also is another male against female. the, Absolutely, the and, uh, right,
3: exactly, and as as you alluded to, the sort of section on the Wilmot Proviso debates, a typical anti-abolition tactic was to say that the abolitionists in publicizing. The, the 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 suffering of the slaves and this was a major goal of the abolitionists they you know they realized most americans lived in a kind of the state of of disbelief and ignorance and so abolitionists took it upon themselves and and uh, fugitive slaves who had escaped slavery and wrote their narratives like frederick Douglass were key to this effort uh they, they they really wanted to expose the horrors of slavery and uh the the, the physical brutality the systematic f- physical brutality on which the system was based and uh, anti-abolitionists would routinely accuse them the abolitionists of having a kind of morbid sympathy for the slaves a kind of a, a kind of a, a obsession with the slave suffering that was that was feminine uh, in that it was driven by by sympathy and passion and and you know traits that were not manly so so again you you see this all, all over the place this kind of rhetoric
1: Let me ask how Abraham Lincoln fits into this picture. Uh, He has been the subject of a number of books we've talked about on this show. Listeners certainly know Lincoln's words, and, and Lincoln is most known for his words. So if we're going to talk about sure uh rhetoric of of, of anti-slavery uh, where do you where do you see lincoln in this
3: he's a very important piece of this puzzle the republican party has this problem when it comes on the scene in the mid 1850s and that is that the other side the pro-slavery side has been accusing anti-slavery folks of being disunionists for a very long time lincoln i'd say maybe more than any other republican just Loathes this charge. He is really bothered by this, and he he wants to find a way to diffuse it. So he develops the argument in the mid 1850s. He says, "Look." We Republicans are going to be the majority if we do things right. And why would the majority want disunion? We're playing by the rules. The rules that are set up are the rules of the electoral system, as the founders created it. And according to those rules, you compete in the partisan arena, and whoever has the most votes wins, and they have the power, and it's a system of majority rule. So in Lincoln's mind, it just made no logical sense to accuse the group that was going to you know, win the majority the fair way uh, uh, using the electoral system that everyone had agreed to. Uh, of being uh, disunionist, uh, and he believed that that this sort of talk of disunion, accusations of disunion, was a kind of uh, um, uh, you know really a, a low, a uh, kind of low and vulgar way to proceed. Um, and and he's he's able to, I think, um, using the sort of argument I've just laid out, uh, able to. Help the Republican Party establish a, 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 uh, a, a kind, to establish a moderate wing of which he himself becomes the champion um that that uh, claims that that the union the uh, saving the union preserving the union restoring the union once the war comes is is uh his uh his paramount objective and again part of the the goal here is to distance himself from the perceived radicalism of the abolition movement i found uh, i gave a lot of talks on lincoln last year as as all civil war historians uh did with the with the bicentennial and i i found Myself sort of developing an argument that I hadn't made in the book since the book ends before the war starts, but I came to be more and more persuaded that even Lincoln's wartime rhetoric, first his insistence you know, at the time of Sumter that they, all he wants is the restoration of the Union, and then his insistence that military necessity drives his decisions, not uh uh any kind of political calculations and then uh, finally by the end of the war his emphasis on providence as god's will as this sort of hand at work in the war that all of these things represent his continued effort to deflect the charge that he wanted this war for the the, the his opponents to say and this is the case democrats made in the lincoln douglas debates and in the election of 1860 for 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 his opponents to say, "You Republicans really want a war, so that you can use the war as a as a pretext for emancipation." Again, this is a charge that got under Lincoln's skin, and he tried again and again to say that um, he was not using uh, uh, war as a political tool; that it was the it was the secessionists who were trying to do that. That he wanted, uh, first and foremost, uh, to uh, to preserve the union. So he he continues to be very. Keen on deflecting the charges of of northern disunionism, even throughout his his uh, his presidency.
1: Now, one of the people who made that charge most often uh, was, of course, Stephen Douglas, Uh and the 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 thing he referred to most often there uh, was Lincoln's House Divided speech. Right. Uh, right. In a book called Disunion, you expect to find the House Divided speech. How does that not uh, endorse the charge that Lincoln? Was somehow a disunionist.
3: Well, I mean, Lincoln's. It's interesting because Lincoln makes the speech, and then in the subsequent Lincoln-Douglas debates, has to somewhat distance himself from it. Uh, and his, um, his his point was that. The the union will not be divided. We Republicans will win according to the rules. We will we will we will triumph uh, using the electoral system. That the ballot box will be the arbiter of this of this of this debate. Uh, and he was making a broader argument about the way that history was trending. Lincoln distanced himself from the immediateists because he didn't you know, made no claim in the Lincoln-Douglas debates that he wanted immediate abolition. Instead, he he used a rhetoric of extinction, of slavery's extinction, and he imagined that slavery was destined to extinction, that spreading its extension would set in motion a process by which it would gradually become extinct. He said at the time of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you know, it might take a hundred years, but but eventually the institution. Um, will uh, will fade, and so, and he was doing this uh, speaking in this way to appeal to moderates to reassure them again that he didn 't want to bring uh, uh, an abolition war, but instead that he believed that the Republicans could use political means, the electoral system, patronage appeals to non slave holding white southerners to change uh, the system and to erode slavery gradually and indeed, it was a great fantasy of the Republican party one and one that Persisted that there was latent anti-slavery sentiment among non-slaveholding white Southerners that they could that they could tap.
1: Which, which Lincoln didn't even give up after he was president. Exactly. Well, Liz, unfortunately, we are out of time already. Uh, it oh, happens.
0: boy, that hour week.
1: flew by, didn't it? It it always does. Uh, but I will. I want to thank you very much uh, for being on the show today.
3: Oh, it was a pleasure, Jerry, and, and, and uh, I wish all your listeners the, the very best, and, and, uh, and, and it, you know, I thank you very much for this, this uh, you know, usually we have to talk in sound bites, and it's such a pleasure to, 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 have, uh, to really get to have a substantive conversation.
1: Well, I, I enjoyed it as well. I know the listeners did, and listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Disunion, The Coming of the American Civil War. It is a really fascinating look at this subject. Uh, you'll enjoy it, and listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Thank you, Jerry.